whether you're a father or a mother or just a regular human being, having a moment to sit quietly before God and to think about His grace and to just let our spirits slow down is a wonderful, wonderful gift. And I hope that you've experienced that many times already this morning. I want to uh, just let you know we're in the midst of a series of reflections we've been doing that we've been calling Real, the Search for Authentic Faith. And we're walking our way through uh, Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia long ago. Galatia was a region in uh, north central uh, Asia Minor, what we would now call Turkey, uh, where there was a strong Christian community. And Paul was speaking to this community, he'd helped to found the church in that place, and was now addressing them uh, through this letter, trying to steer them back to align them more carefully with the plumb line of the true faith, the real faith, the authentic faith that he had given them. It's very easy to drift off that plumb line. It's easy to, to, to lose our way at times in life. As I said earlier, there's so many voices clamoring that would take us this way or that way. And so Paul was trying to help with this, and his letter has been about that theme. Uh, it's, a, it's a doctrinally rich uh, letter in that he is talking a lot about the most important beliefs of the Christian faith. And we're going to be looking today at chapter 5 of Galatians. There are only six chapters, so next week is the final installment. hope you'll come back and be part of that. I will tell you that when we laid out the series, I was aware that uh, Galatians 5 would fall on Father's Day, and I hoped there would be something in here that would speak to fathers. <laughs> And as I've studied the text, I'm pleased to report there is, and I will be getting to that in just a moment. What I had not anticipated was that there would be something in this text that also spoke to the national holiday that uh, we'll be observing uh, tomorrow. And in fact, it was so obvious to me when I read that part, I went, wow, this is just another example of God orchestrating things, uh, because I, it was not in my imagination to lay it out this way, that this Galatians 5 study would fall on the day before uh, Juneteenth, but just listen to God's word as it comes to us from Galatians 5 and verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. It is for freedom that Christ has set all of us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Paul had set the plumb line, Christ has set you free, and now he's seen the church drifting off of that and, and returning to what he calls, and I'll say more about this in a moment, a yoke of slavery. As that verse and tomorrow's holiday reminds us sometimes, freedom takes time to take its full effect. It starts to assert itself and then it it stutters, it slows, sometimes goes even backwards and does not take the full effect for which that gift of freedom uh, is intended. History demonstrates, I think we can all say that we've seen this over the years, it demonstrates that the yoke of slavery in many forms is not easily shed. Our tendency as sinful human beings to dehumanize other people uh, our tendency to see them as tools of our intentions or simply just to be benignly ignorant of the conditions of other people's lives. This tendency 
that results in the injury and the lack of thriving in some sectors is an old and familiar experience in every single nation and every single age, and it remains one of the primary reasons why we need the Savior, who is Jesus Christ. As you know, the Emancipation Proclamation ended the institution of chattel slavery here in these United States. It went into effect on January the 1st of 1863. President Abraham Lincoln intended that as of that date, all of the shackles of slavery were to be shed throughout our land. Four million people made in God's image, precious to him, were finally going to be granted the liberty and the dignity and the opportunity that even our nation's founding documents had, had enshrined as a God-given right, as a God-given intention. And yet, as a matter of fact, it was not until June 19th, hence Juneteenth, uh, 1865, that the chains were actually unlocked from a quarter million people in the state of Texas. In other words, for 18 months, 250,000 people who were legally and deservedly free were burdened again by a yoke of slavery, as Paul would say. Were burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And no one bothered to tell them, you're free. You're free. Thousands more African Americans in Delaware and Kentucky wouldn't be freed for six months beyond Juneteenth. And it was an injustice. It is with something of that same sort of heartache over a devastating wrong and a similar aspiration to see God's goodwill take its full effect, and thankfully since Juneteenth we've seen God's will moving more and more, taking greater and greater effect upon so many, many lives. But it is with this same sense of wrong and of hope that the Apostle Paul uh, writes to the Galatians. He pens this fifth chapter to the church in this part of the world, and the particular wrong that Paul is upset about in this instance is that though the Galatians have been set free by the gospel of Jesus Christ, there are false teachers, Paul calls them agitators, who have re-enslaved them to the Jewish law. This is his concern. Paul has taught them that the sacrifice that Jesus made for them upon the cross has fully freed them from God's judgment on sin. Uh, he has said, in effect, you do not need to go around anymore doing these slavish rituals or worrying about whether or not you've been physically circumcised or trying to justify yourself before God and others by this compulsive virtue signaling that checking boxes off. You don't have to live that any way anymore. That's, that's a life in chains. And Jesus has freed you from that by the power of his cross. Paul literally puts it like this, and I quote verse two, mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, 
which was of course the mark of belonging, the mark that I'm good with God that the Jewish people had, had taken on. He says if you, if you, if you, if you hew, hew to this form of identity, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. In other words, if you think that your obedience to the moral code is going to save you, well, then you better do it perfectly. Um, Don't miss a checkbox. Don't just stop with circumcision. I mean, Make sure you do, you, you, you cross every T and dot every single I. If, if, if it takes your, if it's your performance that matters most, my golly, you better perform harder, more. But understand this, Paul says. If you, if you take that mindset, you are ignoring the value of what Jesus did for you on the cross. You who are trying to be justified by the law, he writes in verse four, have been alienated from Christ. Your choice of the law over Jesus actually separates you from the Lord. And you have fallen away from grace. Boy, how easy it is to fall away from grace. How easy it is to to, to return to sort of a legalistic way of thinking in our lives, a works righteousness mentality. How easy it is to put our hope in our moral performance instead of the amazing grace of God. For through the Spirit, he writes in verse five, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. I'm gonna say more about this in a moment, but the key idea is that the righteousness we seek, the good standing before God, which is what righteousness is, and, and, and the capacity to really live better, and those are really good intentions. We, do see, we ought to seek that. We ought to seek a good standing before God and a capacity to really live uh, better. But, but those goods don't come from our power and our performance so much as from God's, is what Paul's trying to say. It's faith in Christ. It's not our religion, but our real relationship with Jesus. That's our hope. And Paul says in verse six, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself through love. The only thing that counts is that we are connected to Christ by faith. And the the evidence of that connection is that love moves through us and from us. Uh, when we're engrafted into the vine, the life of the vine moves through the branches and bears the fruit, and the supreme fruit is love. So Christ cares mainly that we have a love relationship with him. He's not examining the checklist. He's not examining where we've been the, the perfect mom or not been the perfect mom or dad. 
he's, not, he's, not, he's not examining all the grades we got in school. Um, he looks at those things. He sees that as part of the, the potential and goodness of life. His biggest concern is, are you connected to me so that my power can move through you in wonderful ways? Are you seeking to love others like I love them? And then Paul goes on, he asks this searching question. You were running a good race, he says in verse seven. You were on the track, you were going the right direction. Who cut in on you? (laughs) Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion, the persuasion to, to, to go a different way does not come from the one who calls you. Jesus who calls you, in other words, wouldn't have put the law's chains around your ankles again when he died on the cross so that you could run free. Think about this. If you do, he says, I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. And then Paul starts to get really intense here because the people that he loves, the Galatians, have been emancipated by the proclamation of none other than Jesus Christ himself. On the cross, Jesus declares them free. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. And then in his last words, it is finished. I've paid the price. I've I've bought their freedom, their forgiveness. It is finished. But some people are treating the Galatians as if, in fact, telling them that they still are slaves to the law instead of free children of grace. And it makes Paul mad. It really makes him angry. I remember um, one summer in college, I, I, I took a job working on an offshore oil rig. I was in the Gulf of Mexico. And it was an incredible learning experience in many, many ways. I learned that I do not have a very good engineering brain. I learned that I am not essential to the economy in whole sectors of our economy. And that people who had far less book education than I had bring incredible gifts and capacities that help our economy. It was a very stretching experience. But it was stretching again in that I had to learn how to work for a boss who didn't like me. His name was Floyd. He had not uh, gotten through uh, more than about the ninth grade, though he knew a lot about how to operate on an oil rig. And something about me just bugged the heck out of Floyd. And, And he looked for every opportunity to make my life unpleasant. Gave me empathy for people that work in tough situations and have, are powerless to, 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 to fix it. Uh, I remember he discovered that I suffer from a little bit of seasickness, motion sickness. So at every single opportunity, Floyd would choose me to be the one that they would put in the personnel basket and they would lower with the, with the uh, crane uh, down to the, to the floor, 70 feet below to the supply ships that came in that brought the materials that we needed to take up to the rig. And he would look down over the edge of the rig as I was down there on the tossing sea and he would watch me heave myself over the side of the boat and he would smile and he'd make fun of me when I got back up. And then, in one particular moment, he gave me a job 
of painting a floor. It was a big, big, big floor. And it was hot. And the floor had just been painted. It was pristine. And Floyd said, they called me High Pockets. That was my nickname. I was taller than most people on the rig. Uh, Floyd said, High Pockets, um, I want you to paint that floor again. And he handed me a one and a half inch paintbrush. I was painting the floor when the, the tool pusher, the big boss of the oil rig, happened by. What in the world are you doing? He said. That floor was just painted. That floor is totally good. What are you doing? And with that little brush. And I told him, because Floyd asked me to. Floyd instructed me to. And, and it did not go well for Floyd at that time. The Apostle Paul says, the one who is throwing you, Galatians, into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. In other words, Christ, the big boss, is not happy with people that perpetuate the slave trade. He's not happy with people who, 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 who take others beings who ought to be free and, and drive them back into the, this, this little feverish focus on, on doing life with a one and a half inch brush when they've been declared free, when the, the, the floor has in effect been painted over by the blood of Christ sufficiently. This is really what is upsetting Paul. And, and he goes on to say, I hope you don't think that I've been saying that to you, uh, friends. Uh, I am not a legalist. He says in verse 11, brothers and sisters, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? And in that case, the, the offense of the cross has been abolished. No, he says, I'm being persecuted because I preach a message that's offensive to some people. And what is offensive to some people is this idea that you cannot save yourself by your good deeds. That you could never do enough to save yourself by your good deeds. But the good news is that you do not have to. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ and how he has fully paid for all of your sins upon that cross, if you trust in his grace and his goodness far more than your own, you're going to be okay. This is the good news of the gospel. And then Paul sort of goes off. Verse 12, as for those agitators, those legalists making everyone miserable with their impossible standards, with their refusal of the gospel of, of grace, I wish they would go the whole way past circumcision and emasculate themselves. It's Paul's way of saying, we don't need those kinds of people reproducing. Gets pretty ribald here. So let me just pause our playback of this letter. And I hope this is okay for you. We've been doing a hardcore Bible study up to this point, right? Verse by verse, trying to understand what God's word is saying to us here. Let me just 
pause that for just a moment and acknowledge here on Father's Day how glad I am that my earthly father did reproduce. <laughs> and how glad I am that your earthly fathers did. And that all of us are the heirs of, of that common grace. Uh, I am immensely grateful for the life that my dad gave me. And dad, if you are watching, I can't say that more deeply. I am so grateful for the life, not just the biological life, but the totality of life that came from his grace and his care. I thank, I'm thankful for the immensely long list of ways he has taught me how to make the most of this life. And as I pondered the message of Galatians 5 this week, there, there, there was a particularly memorable lesson that my father taught me that, that came to my mind. And I'm gonna tell this story because maybe this will also resonate with something in you. I, I was in the fifth grade. I was, this is back in the days when they called me Danny. I was in the fifth grade. And earlier that particular day, my friend Todd and I had been caught stealing candy from a local convenience store. Mackenzie, I don't recommend this. It's not a good thing to do. Um, I wish I could say that I had never, ever stolen before. Sadly, however, it had become something of a routine game in my life. Um, it was as, in, as sort of ingrained a pattern as any other kind of sin can sometimes become, a well-grooved pattern becomes so familiar to us. We, never, we don't even think about it as, as sin any longer. Maybe that's how slaveholding once worked for people. I, I, I don't know. Um, but that's how it was for me. I know that even more than eating the chocolate that I was able to steal, I had, I had a little taste for the feeling of power that came from just taking something I wanted for me. For me. And I liked the affirmation that my friend gave me for my illicit daring. How many more bars could I get this time? I especially enjoyed the thrill of getting away with it until I didn't get away with it. Until on that particular day, I looked up into the eyes of Mr. Myers, no relationship, an S on the end, the store owner who had previously really liked me, and I saw the hurt and the disappointment and the confusion in his eyes until I felt what I should have been feeling all along, which was shame over what was really a basic bald-faced sin, a little selfish allowance that I, that I allowed myself in a way that was indicative of probably many other selfish allowances which when all piled together across a society can lead to the condition that we're in in too many places today. I remember going home, I was picked up by my mother abruptly and she said those fateful, fearful words lots of kids have heard before, wait till your father gets home. And I was sent to my room to wait. And I waited what seemed like hours. It was an eternity. It was probably three hours, but it felt like forever because my 
mind was turning over, my stomach was roiling over the agony of this confrontation that was gonna come with my dad. I was finally called into my father's uh, home office and, and I was asked to sit down in a chair that made me feel very, very small. It was a wingback chair, I remember it. I felt tiny, my dad was a big guy. He was sitting behind the big desk in his office and then for a while he just looked at me. And then he said, I'm just trying to understand what happened. I'm just trying to understand. Did mom and I fail to feed you enough so that you got so hungry that you needed to steal? Or did we fail you as parents? in not helping you understand the difference between right and wrong and that, and that stealing was definitely wrong? Did you, did you not consider the feeling that Mr. Myers would have had when he realized what had happened? And with these sorts of questions, my, my, my dad just sort of took the sin that was going on in my life and turned it from every different angle <laughs> and made me look at it in all of these different ways uh, and make me face the absurdity and the perversity and the stupidity and the cupidity of what I had done, of what was going on inside of me to the point where I thought, beat me please instead, ground me. Tell me how many times I have to mow the lawn to earn the money necessary to pay it. I mean, just please, anything but make me look at the reality of my sin. And then my dad said to me, I'd like you to, I'd like you to go tomorrow and apologize personally to Mr. Myers for what you did. And I want you to know that we have already paid him what you owe. And you are not going to be punished today. And we believe you're not going to steal again. And I walked out of that office a free fifth grader. I mean, free in a way that it's hard to put words around to this day but free in two important ways that I invite you to think about as they bear upon your own experience perhaps and as they certainly bear upon what Paul is trying to say here in the letter to the Galatians. When Paul writes at the start of Galatians chapter five, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. He means that in two senses. There are two senses of our freedom that, that he draws out in chapter five and elsewhere in the letter. First of all, when we put our faith in Christ, we obtain freedom from the judgment that our sin deserves. We're like, we're like me as a fifth grader. We absolutely had been caught cold, we deserved a punishment, and we have suddenly been set free from that judgment that our sins deserve. Uh, sometimes, we have no clue what we actually deserve. 
Uh, in fact, I think it's probably safe to say that maybe all of us don't fully get what we actually deserve because the nature of sin, sin is, sin is amongst other things, a spiritual eye disease. It corrupts our, our perception, our ability to understand actually what we're doing, to see others clearly and to, and to see ourselves clearly. And, and so we don't even perceive all of the ways that what we've done or failed to do impacts God or other people or our own character. But regardless of that reality, which is why Jesus said, forgive them, they know not what they do. Regardless, through the power of the cross of Jesus Christ, the punishment that we deserved has been completely absorbed by Jesus. He took it all into himself, every bit of it. Sins past, present, and future absorbed in his body and soul upon the cross. And the debt that we owed for our sins has been fully paid. It is finished, those words he spoke on the cross in Aramaic is to telestai, it literally means debt canceled. Debt canceled. And by his grace and not our works, all of us who put our faith in him are now forgiven and freed to live our life anew, to live our life with hope. And even when we fail, again, and we do, right? It's, it's not that he suddenly decides, oh, now I'll, take, I'll hold you accountable for it all. No, we ask forgiveness again, we turn back to him. He says, we're good, we're good. Keep going, keep going, uh, continue the race. That last part is really important because life in Christ is not just about what we've been freed from, which is judgment, but it's also about what we've been freed for, which is the righteous life of God's kingdom. He didn't, he didn't free us to then have us just sit someplace and meditate on that. He freed us for all of his wonderful purposes in the world, and he is and, and those purposes can be fulfilled by the power of the Holy Spirit is the other message Paul has for us in this text. In simplest terms, I'll go back to the fifth grade experience. I think that my dad paid my debt and he forgave uh, my sin in the belief that his grace might actually have an effect on me, a more enduring effect than punishment would. And he was right. Mr. Meyer's candy was safe from me, forever. All candy. My orientation towards stealing, altered by the power of my father's grace that particular day. I wanted to be a more honest fifth grader, not because I, I thought I could no longer get away with stealing, but because I couldn't get away from the experience of having been given this incredible grace. And it changed something in me. It made me want to be a better person, to be a more generous person like my dad, like Mr. Myers who continued to treat me well despite what I'd done. Whether we are young or older, we all have these appetites we battle of our sinful nature. All of us have our own candy, in a sense, that we battle with. Paul calls this 
these appetites the flesh in the New Testament. Paul says, and I quote verse 19, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. In other words, a lot of what goes on at fraternities or many reality shows in lots of places today. Some folks call these very behaviors freedom. This is me just acting freely when they're actually a form of slavery and our passions come to own us. Chuck Colson, the former White House staffer and the founder of Prison Fellowship, once observed this. Americans have achieved what modernism presented as life's great shining purpose, individual autonomy, the right to do what one chooses, yet this has not produced the promised freedom. Instead, it has led to the loss of community and civility, to kids shooting kids in schoolyards, to citizens huddling in gated communities for protection. We have discovered that we cannot live with the chaos that inevitably results from choice Divorced from God, wrote Colson. We do not have to just live with that chaos, of course. We can stop putting our faith so much in ourselves or in government or in some other form of restraint and we can open ourselves up more to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus has not only freed us from judgment, he has freed us for the life We want to live in our clearest moments for the life of his kingdom, a better life than the one we often settle for and one that does not rely on our strength alone. As you nurture your connection to Jesus, and you're doing that today, bless you for for making the choice that few Americans are making today of, of sitting in a house of worship and looking into the face of Jesus and opening yourself to God's word. As you you go to nurture that relationship, once you leave this place through prayer and Bible study and serving people and joining in various forms of Christian fellowship, as you do these things, it's not in vain. This connection you're establishing will be used by God to fill your life up with his Holy Spirit. And God will start to replace your mere willpower with his real power for character development. Paul says it's not at all hard to recognize somebody who has cultivated that relationship with Jesus. Somebody who has a a connection with Jesus that is real will be obvious because you will start to notice about them or you will notice this about yourself or other people will notice this, that the, the passions and desires of the flesh that used to own you are being transformed now and replaced. And a different kind of character is growing up. For the fruit of the Spirit, says Paul, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Which of those qualities And by the way, they're on that window every week, if you ever forget them, the fruit of the Spirit. Which of those qualities have you most admired in your dad? 
Which of those have been most influential? When I think of my own dad, I see all of them. I see how all of those qualities over the years have been nurtured and and grown up in him. And when I think of another father who was said to have been especially full of those qualities, I think of E. Stanley Jones today. Jones is a name that some of you may not know. He was an American missionary. He gave most of his adult life to serving amongst the Dalit people of India, the lowest in the caste system, the poorest of the poor. And over the years, Stanley Jones became a friend of Mahatma Gandhi. He became a counselor to President Franklin D. Roosevelt. He became a nominee for the Nobel Peace Prize. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. credited one of Jones' best-selling books as having inspired him to pursue a philosophy of nonviolence in the civil rights movement. And if you've ever read one of Stanley Jones' books or devotionals, you'll be struck by how permeated this enormously influential man's writings are with the subject of surrender. Voluntary servanthood. Let me close with this one excerpt. What happens to the self when surrendered to God? Does God wipe the self out? No, says Jones. He merely wipes it clean of selfishness. The very act of your self-surrender gives God the opportunity to cleanse you from selfishness with our consent and our cooperation. And then having cleansed us of our central selfishness, God gives ourselves back to us. It's a paradox, says Jones, but you are never so much your own as when you are most his. Bound to him, you walk the earth free. You're not going to be enchained, enslaved by other people any longer if you're bound to him. Though at his feet, you stand straight before everything else. You suddenly realize that you've aligned yourself with the creative force of the universe so that you are free. Free to create, free to love, free to live, free to live at your maximum, free to be all that he wills for you to be. Stand firm, writes Paul. Stand firm in that freedom and do not let yourselves or anybody else for that matter be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Slavery to the old law, slavery to the sinful self, slavery to any human being. Don't let it happen. Surrender only to the power of the cross. Surrender only to the power of the Holy Spirit because it is for freedom from judgment and freedom for the wonderful possibilities of God's righteous kingdom that Christ has set you and me truly, finally, fully free. For this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.